The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Kathy Fox. Kathy Fox chose air traffic control as a career, first with Transport Canada and then with NAV Canada, where she held a number of senior management positions, including being the first woman vice president operations, from which she retired in 2007. Kathy was subsequently appointed as a board member of the Transportation Safety Board of Canada and has served as its chair since 2014. Kathy has also been extensively involved in other aviation activities for over 45 years, including sport parachuting and commercial aviation. She holds an airline transport pilot license, multi-IFR and instructor class 1 ratings, and has flown over 5,000 hours. Kathy was a Transport Canada-approved pilot examiner for over 25 years and still flies part-time as an instructor. Kathy has been a trailblazer her entire career and has been the recipient of many honors and awards, including being the first woman and youngest person to be president of the Canadian Sport Parachuting Association, the Transport Canada Aviation Safety Award in 1999, inducted into the Quebec Air and Space Hall of Fame in 2004, the 2010 L.C. McGill Northern Lights Award, the prestigious David Charles Abramson Memorial Flight Instructor Safety Award in 2011, in recognition for her exceptional leadership and devotion to the advancement of Canadian aviation safety, and in 2016 was inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame as only the 10th woman to be recognized this way. Most recently, in 2018, she was inducted into the International Women in Aviation Pioneer Hall of Fame. I truly could not be more excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing great, thanks. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Um, it really goes back to when I was a child, because uh, for as long as I can remember, even as a young child, I was interested in flying. I used to climb trees and pretend I was uh, flying a helicopter. And uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, I was exposed to uh, a lot of uh, TV movies about airplanes, I, uh, certainly uh, the, the start of the, the space age. And uh, so I just always wanted to, uh, to learn to fly. Uh, from as long as I can remember. At the age of 20, you became the first woman to lead the Canadian Sport Parachuting Association and led two teams to compete at the international level. Where did your interest in parachuting begin? Well, what happened was that uh, I wanted to learn to fly, and when I was 16 uh, and old enough to take lessons and I had the money, uh, my parents made me make a choice between learning to fly or using that money to go to university. And because I thought of maybe becoming an astronaut or a fighter pilot, I knew that university was important. So I put my flying dreams on hold temporarily, and I uh, started uh, my uh, Bachelor of Science degree at McGill University. And in my first semester there, I saw an advertisement for skydiving, for the McGill Skydiving Club. And I thought, well, if I can't learn to fly, at least skydiving would get me up in an airplane. And so uh, I did my first jump when I was 16, and I really enjoyed it. And so for the rest of my time at McGill, I uh, continued to pursue that sport. 
And in fact, I, I became the president of the McGill Skydiving Club. And uh, so later on, after I left McGill and I was still looking for an aviation job, I joined air traffic control. Uh, but I continued jumping until the uh, my last jump, which was in 1980 and uh, in, in China. But really, the, the interest in skydiving came about due to, uh, I guess, a frustrated desire to learn to fly. And, and once I learned to fly and learned how to land the airplane, I didn't have to jump out of it anymore. What are those competitions like? Well, I was, uh, I mean, I participated in a few competitions, but when I, uh, when I went to China in 1980, I was, I went as the head of delegation for the Canadian parachute team, uh, who had been invited to China along with the United States parachute team to participate in a, in a friendly competition. But of course, Canada had been participating internationally for many years and in fact had won a number of international competitions. So, uh, although I wasn't participating as a competitor, I was proud to lead the Canadian delegation uh, both to France in 1979 uh, to the World Parachuting Championships and then again to, uh, to China in 1980 as part of a friendship competition. How do the teams prepare for those competitions in terms of uh, competing? What is it like to, I guess, put together a team for competition? Well, if we're talking about uh, international sport parachuting, in those days there were three categories. One was called style, so that's individual skydivers per performing sort of gymnastic maneuvers while free-falling. Uh, the second uh, competition was uh, accuracy landings uh, in, a, in a what was called a P-bowl, so a target area, and getting as close as possible to the center of target. And the third uh, form of competition was uh, called relative work, and that was joining up with uh, other parachutes, other skydivers in the air in free fall to form various formations. And Canada was quite uh, good in a number of those areas and, and won awards. So typically the people that went to the international competitions were those who won the national competitions. And uh, a lot of that was just uh, training and practicing, like for any any uh, competitive sport. A lot of it happens behind the scenes with uh, with a lot of practice and hard work and sweat to um, to become good at it. It would never have occurred to me that there was more than one type of free fall that they would take into account, but it makes sense that they would have ones that are more artistic and ones that are based on precision. Well, it was it was an exciting part of my career and uh, one that, you know, if I had the opportunity to do again, I would. But uh, in as I said, I made my last jump in 1980 because we were in China, but I'd really uh, sort of stopped um, jumping regularly in about 1978 once I got my private pilot's license. Now, you mentioned that you've trained as an air traffic controller and you are also a trained pilot. What is it like to fully understand both sides of interactions between air traffic control and pilots? Well, just um, to put it in context, when I graduated from university, I was still looking for a flying job, but there weren't very many. Well, first of all, I wanted, I needed to learn to fly and then get a flying job. But there weren't very many women at that point in, uh, in commercial aviation. And so uh, I joined uh, Air Traffic Control with Transport Canada because some of my friends from university had uh, had seen an advertisement for that and, and uh, decided to take up that career, and I kind of followed them into it. As an air traffic controller in training, I learned a lot of the things that you learn as a pilot. We learned about air law. We learned about theory of flight. We learned about meteorology. And so... I had already uh, been a controller for uh, a couple of years when I took up my uh, flight training. And so I felt very comfortable with the environment. I felt very comfortable with the phraseology. I, as a, as a controller, um, 
you know, you're, you're there to make sure that pilots have the information that they need in order to fly safely, but also that they're separated from each other. And when you're learning to fly, of course, um, you have to be able to communicate with ATC. So having see, knowing what was on the other side made it easier for me as I was learning to fly to know what the controllers needed in terms of information. So I didn't feel intimidated uh, at all uh, in, in communicating with air traffic control. Um, I, I think I was able to communicate better because I understood what they needed. And I also knew that they were there as a, to help me if I got into any uh, difficulties. What suggestions would you have then for uh, maybe a pilot that is a bit anxious or a bit hesitant to talk to ATC? I think there's a number of things that they can do. First of all, if they have the opportunity to visit a control tower or a control center, it makes a big difference when you can see the people behind the microphones and you see that they're just human beings who are there to, you know, to help the pilots um, and make sure that people are safe. Uh, so I think that can be helped. I think listening to air traffic control frequencies, getting a scanner and just listening to, you know, how pilots and controllers talk to one another. And um, also sometimes early on writing down what needs to be said and, and thinking it through before keying the microphone so that uh, it's not kind of keying the microphone and then saying, well, what do I say? knowing what to say before you, you key the microphone. But I think that, and, and that can be practiced on the ground, even with another pilot playing, playing the role. I know I was fortunate enough to go to a control tower when I was about 12 years old. And even though I've already been to one, I still take every opportunity mm -hmm. to go. I think every pilot, if you have the chance, should go to an air traffic control tower. Uh, they're just so fun. It is. It, it was, again, it was a big part of my career. Um, after leaving uh, university uh, to, and I loved working in the control towers. I worked in four towers in, in Quebec, uh, including Cetzille, Bécomo, Saint-Cybert, and Dorval, uh, what is now Trudeau Airport. But um, I loved it because it was, it was like working outside. You, you saw everything that was going on. I got to see lots of different aircraft, uh, worked lots of different types of traffic from general aviation traffic at Saint-Cybert to you know, working with uh, uh, commercial airline traffic, even the Concorde at, uh, at Montreal's uh, Trudeau Airport. Then I went on to do radar or IFR control and uh, had the opportunity to work air traffic, working, uh, flying over the north, over the uh, coming off the ocean. Um, so it was really um, a great uh, career uh, for, for me. And um, every day was different, which is something that I love. I know pilots generally seem to say that they have the best view in aviation, but the 360-degree windows and ZFR control towers, I think, might rival that for best yeah. view. Yeah, and I think one of my uh, one of the views that I will always remember is, uh, you know, watching a, a 747 lift off uh, runway 28 in uh, Montreal uh, because it's such a, a big, ungainly aircraft, and yet it takes off in half the runway length uh, a Dorval. Uh, if it's not heavily loaded, and it was just so majestic to watch this thing uh, gather speed and, and lift off almost magically in front of your eyes. So, yeah, it's a great view. What is the Transportation Safety Board? So the Transportation Safety Board, or TSB, is um, an independent federal agency that is uh, charged with advancing transportation safety by conducting investigations into occurrences involving air, rail, marine, or pipeline, which are the four federally regulated modes of, of uh, transportation in Canada. And so we actually report to Parliament 
through the President of Queen's Privy Council. A lot of people think, oh, Transportation Safety Board, you must be part of Transport Canada. But we're independent, and that allows us to be uh, objective and impartial in terms of uh, conducting our investigations, looking at what happened, why it happened, what needs to happen to uh, to make sure these uh, accidents and incidents don't happen again. What does a typical day in your role as the chair of the TSB look like? I have a, actually a dual role as I'm chair of the board, but I'm also the chief executive officer of the agency. And um, we have about 225, 230 people across the country. So uh, my role is quite varied because I can spend part of my day uh, in meetings talking about things like finance and human resources, uh, but most of my time is spent reviewing investigation reports that are uh, following the investigations conducted by our, our technical and, um, and operational investigators. I um, also do a lot of outreach to uh, external stakeholders, be that operators, uh, industry associations, parliament, and um, we get involved in, uh, in legal matters, for example, uh, making sure that the protections under our act are, are respected. So I don't really have a typical day uh, because it can be very different from, from one day to the next. But I think the, uh, the thing, and of course we get involved with the media in terms of when we release our report. So it's, it's quite a varied role and uh, one that uh, I, I find very challenging and, and very interesting because of uh, the scope of our operations. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, Kathy's a pilot, uh, you know, she was an air traffic controller, therefore I'm only focused on aviation. But one of the, th the things I like about this, about the, the TSB and about my role is that I'm involved also with uh, rail, marine and pipeline. So I have a much broader perspective on the transportation system in Canada. Given that the TSB is multimodal and you have an aviation background. What have you found most interesting about the other modes of transportation? Well, there are certainly technical differences and there are cultural differences, if I can say, between the different industries. But at the end of the day, when we look at occurrences that happen, regardless of mode, it's still about looking at human factors, human performance limitations. Organizational issues are similar across modes. So I, I find it quite interesting that, uh, you know, while some of the underlying causes and contributing factors due to, to technical factors may be different because of the, you know, different technology and use, uh, a lot of the human factors, the organizational factors are, are the same across modes. Do you find that oftentimes the modes are quite siloed from each other or are there things that each mode can maybe learn from the others. I think there are definite silos that exist. And, and when you think of it, I mean, for example, the railway industry is, you know, hundreds of years old um, compared to air. And, and so they've grown up, the industries have grown up differently. The technologies are different. But I do think that um, modes can, can learn from each other. For example, uh, the TSB uh, hosted a, a multimodal uh, symposium on, uh, on things like safety management and fatigue and regulatory oversight, because those cross modal boundaries, when you talk about how organizations manage uh, risk or how uh, Transport Canada as the regulator in the case of air rail and the marine uh, oversees those. And fatigue is a multimodal issue because any of these transportation industries work 24 seven. And, uh, and so therefore fatigue is a, is a definite concern in all of them. 
I guess as long as there is a human factor being a person that is part of the operation, there's always the risk of fatigue. That's right. And so what it is is, I mean, operators need to um, have people working at various times of the day and night. They need to make sure that the schedules that they assign people are, are such that um, uh, they're not going to uh, be conducive to fatigue, that people are going to have opportunities to rest. Uh, between work, work shifts, uh, but also workers, uh, whether they're pilots or, or um, locomotive engineers or, or marine uh, masters, also need to make sure that they get, that they, they take the opportunities for rest that are provided to them so that they can arrive fit uh, for work. And the fact is you can't um, eliminate fatigue. It's, it's a physiological fact for all of us. So even learning how to manage it uh, and, uh, and mitigate the risk of fatigue or how to take steps to, to mitigate when people are fatigued so that that doesn't automatically lead to a, an accident or an incident is something that we all have to work at. Having such a diverse aviation background, how does this impact the way you approach your role as chair? Well, I think because I've, um, I've jumped out of airplanes, I've controlled airplanes, I fly airplanes still, uh, and I was involved uh, at NAV Canada in, in running the air traffic control system, I think that I've evolved to think uh, very differently about uh, safety than when I first started. When I first started, I believed that, you know, if, if, um, if you were properly trained and you followed procedures and uh, the equipment didn't break and you paid attention, that things would be safe. But now uh, I realize that it really is about managing risk. And to manage risk, you have to identify hazards. You've got to assess uh, what the risks are in terms of their frequency, their probability, their severity, and then you've got to find ways to manage it. So I think that my all of my experience uh, in those various roles has resulted in me, in effect, practicing safety for you know over forty years now. And so the the that experience of practicing safety certainly contributes to how I think about it uh, now in this role and, and how uh, individuals and uh, operators and a regulator like Transport Canada, how they have to uh, manage safety. What type of aviation incidents does the TSB respond to and what considerations go into choosing whether or not to send an investigative team? The uh, Transportation Safety Board investigates both incidents and accidents. So I think most people understand the concept of an accident where somebody gets hurt or there's damage to equipment or, or property. But we can also learn a lot from incidents where there may not be injuries or damage, but there could have been had things gone, gone too far. So what we look at is, um, first of all, uh, in terms of deploying is what were their injuries or losses of life? Uh, was there extensive uh, property or uh, environmental damage? Uh, is this a high profile occurrence, something where the public has an expectation that the TSB will investigate? Are we going to learn something new, something that we, you know, to advance transportation safety, because that's our ultimate mandate? And uh, is this something that is on our watch list of key safety issues that need to be addressed? So those are all the factors that go into determining First, whether um, we'll send an investigator or a team of investigators on site. And then once they've assessed uh, 
the, the occurrence, either the incident or the accident, will determine if, in fact, a full investigation is warranted. It's important to note that we get somewhere, um, we receive reports of somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 occurrences. That's in all modes, uh, air, rail, marine, and pipeline. And we can't uh, investigate every single one of those occurrences, but every single one is documented. Uh, we gather information, they're assessed, and then a decision is made as to what classification of investigation or what class of investigation will be conducted. And typically we'll, we'll do about 70 to 80 full investigations per year, uh, culminating in a, in a public report. But So th those are some of the factors that go into it. Now, when you're putting the investigative teams together, when you have agreed to go in and conduct an investigation, even if it's preliminary, how are those teams formed? Um, it really depends on the, the size or the scope of the, the occurrence. So let's say it's a small general aviation aircraft that uh, crashed and, uh, and maybe there are uh, unfortunately fatalities associated with that. We will send in typically uh, at least a team of, of two investigators, but we may send more. Uh, so any, and then you look at a major investigation like a, a Lac Megansic rail derailment in 2013, we had about uh, 25 to 30 investigators on site for a period of several weeks um, uh, on that investigation. So it's very much um, depends on, on the scope of the, uh, of the occurrence. But in terms of the actual investigation, it very much is a team effort. So we have an investigator in charge who may be somebody from one of our regional offices or could be somebody from our head office. Uh, and then that investigator brings in other members. So it could be other uh, operational or technical investigators talking about an aviation accident. Typically, we're looking for people with either a pilot background, aeronautical engineer, or um, aviation maintenance as examples. We'll bring in people uh, from our lab. The, uh, we have an engineering lab that's capable of doing quite sophisticated analysis of wreckage. Uh, engines and uh, instrumentation, as well as the material, the um, airframe. Uh, so we'll bring in those uh, resources to help us. We have investigators that are specialists in human factors, human performance, that will look at things like fatigue, uh, like any medical factors that may have played a role, as well as just decision making and, and uh, human, human, what we know as human factors. Um, so th that team comes together and uh, participates in the three phases of the investigation, which is the field phase, where they actually go on site, collect evidence, document the site. Then we have what's called the examination and analysis phase, and this is where we do a lot of um, examination of, of wreckage, uh, of records, of recordings, all of that, to try and find out what was the sequence of events and what caused um, the occurrence to, to happen. And then we have the report writing phase. So it's, it's quite a, um, a range of, of expertise and skills that are brought to bear. Now, when you get to the report writing phase, is that uh, a team of people putting it together that are the ones that actually were on the on-site investigating, or is it another office that takes all the information that has been produced and turns it into one larger report? No, it's it's uh, the team that prepares the the written report under the uh, under the supervision, if you will, of the investigator in charge. And uh, often we do have technical writers uh, in each of the uh, the modal branches to to help with that process. Um, so it, it is a team effort, and then they report once it's um, a, it's a draft report is reviewed by the regional manager by the director of investigations 
who has the ultimate and exclusive authority under our act to conduct the investigation. Then the uh, draft report eventually will come to the board, and that's when uh, myself and the other board members will get involved in reviewing it. Uh, sometimes we ask for changes. Sometimes we think we want to uh, make things clearer for the reader. Uh, or we may even ask for other lines of inquiry that, that may not have been explored or may have been explored but aren't in the report. The draft report then gets reviewed by um, those who contribute to its accuracy and completeness. So that would include the operator, uh, the crew. And if the crew is not alive, then they're next of kin. Uh, and then anybody else who can contribute. It could be a manufacturer or uh, the maintainer or um, other, uh, you know, other uh, organizations like that. Uh, the regulator always has an opportunity to review it. And then after we receive all their comments, uh, then we, we do make the final report and, uh, and publish it. And that, that whole process takes a long time. Uh, and it varies, of course, depending on the, the complexity of the investigation. What training or background does someone need to work as a TSB incident or accident investigator? Typically, uh, again, it depends where they work, but we'll, we'll focus on uh, investigators and, um, and we'll talk mainly about air investigators. So we're looking for people who have uh, obviously expertise and experience in the industry. So uh, we look for pilots, uh, we look for aeronautical engineers, aviation maintainers, uh, so uh, or people who've got uh, experience with instrumentation and aircraft systems. And they can either work in our air branch um, or they could work at our engineering lab because we really need a combination of both operational and technical skills. So typically we're, we're hiring people who are at mid-career or later because we want people who have expertise and experience uh, in the field that um, are in, in the, the, the air industry and in, in their particular field of, of uh, specialty. Um, we obviously uh, also have, as I said, other, other specialties like human performance. So we hire psychologists or people who studied, you know, sociology or organizational behavior. So there's really a wide range of skills. But I think the important thing is that we're looking for people at, uh, at mid-career or later uh, so that they can bring their industry or academic experience, or or maybe they've worked for Transport Canada, or maybe they worked, uh, they've been in the military, they can bring that expertise to the board, and then uh, uh, as investigators, and then we train them. So we provide a significant amount of training uh, to train people as investigators in our methodology. And what would some of that training include? So it's, it's quite extensive, um, and it includes everything from um, uh, establishing a sequence of events, the actual um, safety investigation methodology that we use to identify uh, unsafe acts and conditions, and, and then analyze and determine what are the underlying safety deficiencies. But there's also very practical skills like interviewing, how to interview witnesses to an occurrence, people who who could have been very traumatized, uh, could be the crew themselves if, they're, uh, if, they're, if they survived the accident, um, could be passengers or other people who were directly involved. So interviewing skills is a big thing. We also teach them, um, you know, how to deal with the stress because it can be quite stressful going to accident sites and, and dealing with people who've been traumatized. So we try and make sure that our our investigators are equipped in terms of uh, critical incident stress for themselves and for their own mental health. 
We also, uh, again, going back to the practical side, uh, they need to learn how to use uh, uh, personal protective equipment uh, because they have to be properly protected against biohazards or chemical hazards when they when they go on site. Uh, they have to learn about their powers. Uh, TSB investigators under the uh, under our legislation have, have quite a few powers uh, to be able to uh, you know compel witnesses to uh, seize um, materials that they need for the investigation. So the legal side is very important, as well as dealing with the media, because of course uh, we all know as soon as there's an aircraft crash, the media wants to to know well what happened, why did this accident happen, and so dealing with the media is uh, also an important skill, and we also do teach uh, writing skills as well. That sounds incredibly comprehensive. Uh, approximately how long would that training take? Um, it's it's really done over a period of a year or two, uh, but certainly uh, over a period of a year. And investigators, when they're first hired uh, at the TSB and they undergo their training, they'll be brought in um, as as um, uh, to assist investigations, but they won't necessarily be appointed as an investigator in charge until they've had a few investigations as a team member under their belt and they're, they're, they have the confidence and the skills and the expertise and the experience to go out and lead an investigation. You know, when the investigators arrive on site, they don't know what they're dealing with yet. Um, it, it could be fairly straightforward or it could be very complex and lead down lines of inquiry that could have significant Im impact on pilot training, on um, uh, aircraft design and maintenance procedures. So. It's, um, it, it really is a mystery that remains to be solved, but they don't know when they get there uh, just how extensive uh, or how long it will take to, um, to identify the issues that need to be addressed. How has the advancement of technology maybe changed the way we approach incident and accident investigations? I think that, you know, it, it's interesting if you go back in history, to the beginning of human factors, it really started with things like ergonomics, such as um, the the shape of a gear handle, which if you know on any light twin is round typically, versus the shape of a flap handle, which is rectangular or, or, or flat. Um, and that's because of lessons learned in the early days of flying where people would inadvertently raise the gear when they meant to raise the flaps and so on. So it started out looking at it from an ergonomic perspective. And then there was looking at it from a physiological perspective, so things like fatigue, medical factors. And then we started looking more at, at human factors, so decision-making and biases. But if you look at technology, uh, the technology today has evolved, you know, from the, the steam gauge, uh, you know, aircraft and, and piston engines to very sophisticated composite materials, uh, automated systems, and... Um, uh, you know, new engine designs and, and so on. So I think the biggest change is in the human machine interface and what goes on in the cockpit with glass cockpits. I mean, we, we have to just look at the, um, you know, at, at, at the issues with the MAX aircraft and that, uh, you know, how design uh, considerations and assumptions that were made, um, you know, contributed to two uh, major accidents and all of the things that have happened since then uh, to deal with it so the aircraft can be uh, safely put back into service. So the, I think the big changes in technology are the, the human-machine interface, the systems, uh, how complex they become, how computer-driven they become, fly-by-wire, glass pockets, all of those things. 
And, uh, and so we have to make sure that we evolve, not only to understand the technology, but to understand um, how, how crews interact uh, with those technologies. Another example of how technology has sort of changed accident and incident investigation that I can think of is uh, an, an NTSB investigator, uh, so the National Transportation Safety mm-hmm. Board, the American equivalent of the TSC, one of their investigators remarked that when they go to a site and are initially responding and trying to even just sort of locate debris in a potential debris field, that now they can use a personal locator beacon and go right up to the debris to triangulate it back to the main wreckage point as opposed to trying to triangulate it using a more traditional mm-hmm. fashion of GPS coordination. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. And, and looking at it from that perspective, yes. And for example, we, we often use uh, drones um, to, uh, to map out a, a, uh, a debris field. Uh, but that's also an interesting way to do it because that's quite important in order to be able to determine things like, for example, did the aircraft break up in flight, in which case it's going to be spread over a much wider area. Uh, than if it uh, broke up on impact, where the debris field is is much closer. So yes, those are those are different technologies that are are changing um, the way we look at things. Arion um, and and satellite based navigation ADS is helping a lot because very often when an airplane isn't equipped with um, a uh, a flight data recorder, for example. We can use either onboard GPSs and their and their non-volatile memory uh, to reconstruct the last minutes or seconds of flight, but we can also use satellite data, which is available to us, and and that can make a big difference in two ways: one, in terms of even being able to locate an aircraft after its crash, but also in being able to uh, see what the aircraft was doing in terms of its speed, its heading, its you know rate of descent. Um, so there's a lot of new technology which has definitely helped um, investigators. What is the most rewarding aspect of your role? I think really it's, um, first of all, it's finding answers, especially in the case of a fatal accident. It's really important for those who lost loved ones in that accident to find out what happened. So I think being able to provide those answers, and we can't always provide them, unfortunately. Sometimes it happens that we just don't have enough, and we don't want to speculate or guess. Uh, but I think where we're, where we can, where we can find answers um, to help provide closure to the families, to the next of kin, that's really a, a rewarding part of what is a tragic occurrence for them. And I think even more broadly speaking, in, a, in cases where uh, fortunately there were no fatalities, it's the ability to, uh, to make changes, to, uh, to find efficiencies, uh, to advocate for changes, and then to see them implemented. So it could be changes in aircraft design, in systems design, in new regulations, in pilot training, uh, in procedures that are used by an operator. Being able to make a difference uh, that actually improves safety and contributes to uh, an improving uh, safety performance is the most rewarding feature of the job. In 2010, you were awarded the Northern Lights Aero Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award. And in 2016, you were inducted as a member of Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame. What did it mean for you to receive these honors? Um, well, it was it was very humbling experience uh, for me. Uh, it was, and I was very, I felt, I guess, very validated. You know, when you're when I was going through my career, you don't sort of think, well, I'm doing this 
and maybe someday I'll, I'll get recognized for it. You do it because it's interesting, it's it's enjoyable, it gives me purpose, um, and I think I can make a difference. So, uh, to me, it was uh, it was just a very humbling uh, experience. I was very honored, and at the same time, I felt very. It, it gave me validation, I guess, for for what I did or what I had been doing all my career. And uh, and as I, I said at the time, especially at the Hall of Fame um, dinner is that it, it just motivates me to do more, uh, to continue to try and contribute for as long as I, as I possibly can. I don't remember the exact quote, um, but I do know that there was someone at the Northern Lights uh, dinner when you were awarded that had mentioned that over 40 years of an aviation career, you had had nothing but passion and enthusiasm for aviation and based on the fact that in those 40 years, you had not hit your sort of career limit, they expected that you never would. And I remember just thinking, what a beautiful sentiment that was and mm-hmm. how, how true it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I jokingly said that in 2016 that, you know, I, was, I felt like I was still too young to be in a museum. And so um, I, I do think that when, when you are recognized uh, for you know, your achievements, uh, I hope it's, it's not the end. I really hope that it, it fuels that passion and that motivation to keep doing more uh, and to keep contributing. And one of the things that, that I did say in 2016, and I, I have repeated since then, is we can't all be the first to do something uh, because somebody may have come along ahead of you. And we can't always be the best at something because somebody can always come along and do it better. But I think we can all, all strive to make a difference. And that's what I've tried to do over the course of my career and what I will continue to, to try and do uh, as long as I'm, I'm able. As someone that is admired by many in aviation, I'm curious to know who is someone in aviation that you admire and why? You know, it'd be hard to pick out any one individual, but I, I certainly do admire um, those who have been the first to do something. Um, and, and I think of people like, you know, Rosella Bjornsson, who was the, the first uh, female pilot hired by an airline um, in, in um, Canada. I think of people like Judy Cameron, the first, you know, air, a female hired by Air Canada. I think of Roberta Bondar, the first uh, female Canadian astronaut, uh, Dee Brasseur and, and Jane Foster, who were the first females to, to fly the F-18. I think anybody who is the first at doing something, um, you know, they don't necessarily have, uh, well, they don't have a role model, at least not a female role model to follow. And so it's, it's you know, they. I think you go into that sort of not knowing what to expect, but also feeling that there's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders not to mess it up for the next people who will follow you and also to make, to open doors uh, for others to follow you. But I also have a lot of, um, I also am inspired by those who have overcome incredible physical or intellectual or emotional uh, challenges and yet have gone on to to lead uh, productive lives and make a difference. Um, So it's, it's hard to name any one individual, but I, I certainly know it when I when I see it in somebody, and that also motivates me to to keep keep on keeping on and to keep on trying to make a difference. What advice do you have for someone considering an aviation career? Well, definitely, if somebody is considering an aviation career, I hope you do it because you love it, and if you love it 
and you have a dream, then follow that dream. Um, I think it's important these days. There's so many more opportunities that are available um, to men and women than were available in my time. Uh, whether it's to be a, a pilot, whether it's to be an air traffic controller, um, but there's so many other opportunities in, in aviation and aerospace, uh, whether it's to be, you know, to own a, a fixed base operator or, um, as I said, there's just so many opportunities that I, I hope people really check out what those opportunities are. But follow your dreams, be prepared, um, you know, for, for be flexible, be prepared for some adversity, some ups and downs, and, uh, and just keep putting, uh, you know, one foot in front of the other. I know some of that sounds a bit cliched, but I know in, in my life, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. Well, I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Um, you can't change the circumstances of the timing of your birth, but you can make choices. And so uh, I just uh, advocate for people to follow their dreams, be prepared for adversity, be flexible, and, uh, you know, you, you just never know where life may lead you. And maybe it leads you in a direction that you hadn't even considered and that turns out better than what you what you'd hoped for. I remember one of the things you've said that has really resonated with me was to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. If it's an opportunity for new training or an opportunity to gain a new skill, take it. And that is the advice that I give people when they ask about aviation that turn down no opportunity. Yeah, and that's very true. Uh, and, and certainly that's what contributed to me being where I am today. Uh, and it, it does involve taking some risks um, with your career. Sometimes a lateral move is actually a way to move ahead in the future. Um, so uh, that is definitely something that, that helped me get to where I am and uh, is good advice to follow. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? That's a, another difficult question because I could think of many. And um, I think uh, certainly uh, one of the highlights of my career was 9-11. Uh, and that was because um, we were faced with a situation that nobody had ever planned for or even anticipated, and that was the complete shutdown of, of airspace in, in Canada and the United States. Um, and I was, I, at that time, I was Assistant Vice President of Air Traffic Services for NAV Canada, and so I was responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the air traffic control system. And, um, you know, I still remember where I was that day when we, when I got the call about the first aircraft going into uh, one of the Twin Towers in New York and, and then a second aircraft going into the other one and then a third aircraft going into the Pentagon. Like nobody knew what was happening. And uh, so we had to react very quickly. Um, and I just remember how, how, how shocking that was for the world and how grateful I was to be able to, to do something uh, meaningful during that time period, which was first um, uh, making sure that the aircraft that were in the air could land safely, and then secondly, uh, being involved in, in getting the uh, uh, getting the system running again. And that's certainly one that will, will always, uh, you know, stand out for, for me. But, I mean, there are many other things that, that I think about when I think back to, uh, you know, to my career, um, whether it was flying, uh, getting to fly the F-18 uh, as a passenger. Um, I didn't get to be an astronaut, but at least I've, I've probably had the opportunity to 
uh, to fly in something as close to a rocket as I, I may ever be in. Um, so there, there are many, uh, you know, many, many highlights. It has been truly such an honor for me to have had you join me today. Kathy Fox, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here and uh, good luck with, uh, with your podcast. And, and I look forward to, to hearing some of your other guests. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.